foreign relations committee will come to order we thank our witnesses for spending their time with us and sharing insights that i know will be a no will be valuable it's been nearly a year since we last discussed the unwillingness of the south sudanese officials to govern responsibly despite the significant efforts of the u s and the international community violent impunity persists as this crisis erupted in July, President Kiir's forces apparently fired on U.S. diplomatic vehicles, shot and injured a U.N. official, terrorized American and other aid workers, and executed a South Sudanese journalist. President Kiir consolidated control after yet another contrived military action against his former deputy, Reek Mashar. Kiir's uh, recent replacement of Mashar with a poorly supported opposition alternative likely invalidates the unity government and the August 2015 peace agreement itself. Um, I think it calls into question uh, what our U.S. commitment should be with others, and I know there's a range of options that we will explore today as we hear from you. South Sudan achieved independence in 2011 after a desperate effort to break free from a violent and oppressive Sudanese government. Tragically, South Sudan's leaders followed a similar repressive path, targeting women and children, killing civilians, and targeting refugees and humanitarians for rape, torture, and death. Five years on, South Sudan remains desperately reliant on international assistance, yet its government persists in inflaming the circumstances for famine and war. One in five South Sudanese have fled their homes, and over one million refugees have fled their country to safer places, believe, unbelievably, such as Dafar, Darfur, uh, which just a few years ago was certainly not, not perceived that. Um, the international community has long held off imposing sanctions with vague hope that responsibility will somehow emerge. The inclination to rob, cheat, and kill has persisted as evidenced by recent violent events and legitimate reports of gross corruption of Kir, Mashar, and their cronies who continue to divert dwindling resources. And let me just say uh, an exclamation point here. This has turned out for both of them to be uh, all about one thing, and that's money, um, using uh, their own people. Uh, against each other who are being uh, systematically killed over their desire, each of their desire, from my perspective, to loot their country and to enrich themselves personally. July's violent once, violence once again exposed the limitations of South Sudan's UN peacekeeping mission, which is unable to meet the mandate to protect civilians under the UN protection, including those being raped yards from their gate. And uh, again, I I don't know how many times we're going to um, hear of our peacekeeping efforts falling short. Uh, I still believe that, uh, I know this is a unique circumstance, but uh, I believe the UN has been uh, totally feckless as it relates to addressing this issue. Again, I know these people are overstretched right now in South Sudan, but it continues to be a persistent problem with US, UN peacekeeping troops. UNMIS is tested and already stretched uh, limits of peacekeeping missions and with the addition of protection of civilian sites and proposed regional protection force, one must ask, is this a recipe for failure? I'm interested in hearing today from our distinguished witnesses how the international community can sustain humanitarian effort in South Sudan while fundamentally changing the dynamic with actors in South Sudan, including regional 
uh, sanctions. I welcome our witnesses, two of whom bring a critical on-the-ground perspective as well as perceptions of international efforts to date as we consider what's happening and alternative options. I want to thank you for being here and turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, first of all, thank you very much for convening uh, this hearing. The question is whether the youngest country in the world can survive. And I think I'm not overstating our concerns. Uh, the hearing we held last December, we thought would focus the different stakeholders into a plan that would allow the people of South Sudan to have a government that could protect their interest. Instead, we see a circumstance that was bad last December get worse, where it is used uh, attacks on the civilian population as a military tactic. You mentioned Darfur, and although every circumstance is different, the human tragedies that we're witnessing in South Sudan do re remind us of what was happening in Darfur. Uh, it is, uh, cannot continue, and the international community cannot allow these atrocities to go continue forward. I'll give you many examples. The July fighting uh, between the warring factions, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights estimates hundreds of civilian deaths, including over 200 raped civilians by the militaries, international aid workers in terrain compound beaten, shot, and gang raped by government forces while the national security forces stood by and did nothing, U.S. embassy personnel, as you pointed out, being fired upon by government officials, the government refusing to allow medical evacuation of wounded peacekeepers. That is so contrary to any established international protocols or rules. And then the status of force agreement of the United Nations, the use of the Rapid Protection Force, which, Mr. Chairman, I'm telling you, I think it's critically important for South Sudan to have the presence of the international um, body. And yet, the government is restricting what equipment they can take with countries they come from and preventing them from doing their mission. So how can they operate? How can they do their work without the government help and support? And it's the failure of the leaders in the peace process. We had great hope about the peace process moving forward, and President Kerr and uh, for, uh, Vice President Mashar, replaced now by uh, Mr. Dang, none have shown true leadership. And all, I believe, are complicitous in the atrocities that have taken place. And then there's no accountability. There's impunity for these actions. You've seen no effective way in which the government has held those who have committed these abuses accountable for their action. Last December, I asked whether the peace process was viable and what the international community plans to do should be if the parties abandon it. The peace agreement, if not dead, is certainly on life support. The economy is in shambles. Nearly 5 million people need food aid, which will be difficult to deliver in wake of the alleged looting of the World Food Program compound and increasing threats against humanitarian personnel. Violence continues to flare in various parts of the country, and the credibility of the South Sudan's leaders have been severely compromised by their attacks on their own civilians. You add that all up. So if South Sudan is not a failed state, it's certainly a state which has badly failed its people. The question is, what can we do? to help the people of South Sudan from the sufferings that they're currently being 
subjected to. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses as to how we can help the people of South Sudan. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We'll now turn to our witnesses. On the panel today, we'll hear from private witnesses representing South Sudan's civil society as well as an academic and advocacy institutions. Our first witness is Dr. Jock Madut Jock. Hope I pronounced that correctly. I'm surprised at myself. Thank you. Uh, Co-founder and executive director of the Sud Institute of Sudan, Sudan, and currently professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Thanks for traveling uh, that far to be with us. Our second witness is the Honorable Kate Omquist Knopf the director for the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University and the former assistant administrator for Africa at USAID. Thank you. Our third witness is Dr. Luca Biong Ding Kual. How did we do? Again, a surprise. The global fellow of the Peace Research Institute at Oslo, Norway, as well as a fellow at Rift Valley Institute, South Sudan. Thank you for being here. Our last witness is Mr. Peter Yeo. Thank you for that simplicity. The, Peter, the, the president of the Better World Campaign and vice president for public policy and advocacy at the United Nations Foundation. Uh, we are uh, very fortunate to have all of you here. If you would just begin your testimony in the order that I introduced you without, uh, uh, without anybody objecting, your full record or your full written testimony will be entered into the record so you can summarize. We would encourage you to do so in about five minutes. And with that, uh, if you would begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Cocker, um, Ranking Member uh, Cardin, and committee members. Thank you very much, uh, indeed, for inviting me here today. I also want to thank the committee for keeping South Sudan a topic of discussion in Washington uh, for quite a, a, a bit of time now. Uh, the views I express here are my own uh, and not those of uh, the Sud Institute, where I am the executive director. Um, in addressing the crisis of South Sudan, I would like to shift the discussion slightly away from uh, the focus that has been put on uh, the contending uh, leaders of South Sudan and, 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 and try to show a little bit about what life is like for South Sudanese. Uh, and much of the crisis that is engulfing the country today is one of two issues, really. Uh, the first is the burden of the war of liberation, which went on for so long and, and made South Sudan uh, one of the worst, most destroyed uh, corners of the world since the Second World War. Um, there were promises made at the end of that war that the burden of that war would be offloaded by programs of government, and that uh, program uh, was not forthcoming. It didn't happen. There were no programs put in place to manage the expectations of South Sudanese. And the country was born into too much wealth, uh, resources that fell into the hands of uh, liberators who had really not seen such amount of money ever in their lives. And um, they went on a shopping spree and did not invest in the future of the, of the country and the people of the country. These individuals, had undoubtedly done so much to make the best of their country possible. Uh, but nearly all of them quickly became disconnected uh, from the realities of everyday citizens. They did not think that the oil money um, 
would ever run out. And I'm talking about those people who are in office today as well as people who, who are no longer in office, who are party to that uh, looting and, and corruption and, and uh, siphoning off of national resources into uh, foreign uh, businesses and, 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 and buying of homes and, and uh, other kinds of investment outside the country. Now, the second, of course, is that um, we, while we might focus on uh, the peace agreement and the people who signed this peace agreement, uh, my reading of the situation is that the country is becoming undone at the seams. And so while we might, um, the conflict that is engulfing the country, while we are struggling to reconcile the political military elite, these leaders are only able to continue to draw from their supporters to, uh, to, to, um, to continue this useless war because of their ability to divide people. And, and divisiveness that uh, remove the political loyalties from uh, issues and onto personalities, personalities that come from a specific uh, ethnic background. And as a result, I, uh, I, I say that um, the situation that I describe as causing the country to become undone at the seams can be uh, represented by what is going on since 2007, 2008, uh, where in, in Jongle, for example, and in Eastern Equatorial and in Warap State and Lakes, South Sudanese killed of each other more than Northern Sudan was able to kill in a, in a similar period. And all of this is because the expectations of the people were not prioritized by these leaders once they got their country. Now, I was recently in Wau State, in Gogreal State, which is the home state of the president. I was also in northern part of uh, Toynch State. And my assessment of the situation there was that uh, the recurrent sectional warfare uh, that has plagued the country and uh, over the years is continuing to affect people and their ability to produce crops and to look after their livestock and to look after their entire livelihood. Even in places that have not been uh, impacted directly by the violent crises that are going on uh, in, in Juba, uh, these areas are uh, now also drawn into the conflict because of the inaction at the national level. On the diplomatic front, uh, there has been no market uh, progress uh, on since the UN Security Council Resolution uh, 2304 to deploy an additional 4,000 forces. This issue has become a very divisive issue as well. The verdict is still not out, and I don't think we will ever get a collective verdict on this. But, uh, but it, it seems that they all South Sudanese agree that they are not holding their breath on this issue. Uh, those who are op opposing it say that uh, it will not solve the problems, it will cause division. Those who are pro, uh, supporting it say that it will not, uh, it does not give them confidence that it will protect their lives since it will be strictly based in Juba. Uh, so what could the well community do uh, to help South Sudan? It is my considered position that the country has been on life support for over two decades already. 
And this has produced two glaring realities that are usually not discussed and not discussed with honesty. First, the international community has always bailed South Sudan out. Uh, bailed how always meant what? I didn't hear. Huh? The, the international community has always bailed the citizens, the leaders of South Sudan from their responsibility to take welfare of their people. They have always uh, had somebody intervening to help the people. And as a result, the international community's assistance, especially the humanitarian assistance, may be uh, keeping some people alive, but it has really become an alibi for failure of the leadership in South Sudan. Um, South Sudan, uh, the South Sudanese have never really been pushed very hard against the wall to the point where they have to step back and say, let's think for ourselves. And so I suggest that uh, the humanitarian aid has contributed to prolongation of this conflict and to leaders not being able to really have a program of welfare for their people. So we should really re renew a discussion on what to do with the humanitarian aid. Yes, it has kept some people alive, and there are people who are living in very miserable conditions right now who are living because of the international aid. But they still get killed in the end. So if the international aid is prolonging conflict, I, I'm willing to suggest that we rethink this, even at the risk of some people dying. Finally, I'm, I'm not suggesting that aid is bad, but aid that does not show results and does not have massive impact because of, even because, even despite the massive investments, the United States government has invested close to $11 billion since 2005 in South Sudan. If we, if we could, we've got four panelists, if we could come to a close, that would be helpful. I'll, I'll conclude. In, uh, okay. Yeah. Thank you so. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it, Ms. Nam. <coughs> Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for convening this hearing and for inviting me to speak today. Uh, the views I express are, of course, my own and not those of the U.S. government. After two decades of experience with South Sudan, I remain firmly convinced that the United States support for the self-determination of the people of South Sudan was and still is necessary for lasting peace for the country. I'm equally convinced, however, that Americans and South Sudanese alike <clears throat> must acknowledge that South Sudan has failed its people. It is past time to abandon the myths regarding the health of South Sudan's political culture, the capacity of its leaders, and the potential impact of technical interventions alone from development assistance to peacekeeping. Just as many of these myths misled us during the interim period, they continue to underpin U.S. policy today. Mr. Chairman, as my written testimony discusses these myths in more detail, I will bypass that now in order to focus on an alternative way forward for South Sudan. Suffice it to say, however, that I do not believe that the agreement signed <clears throat> in August 2015 remains a viable path towards peace, nor that Salva Kiir and Riek Machar can be part of a solution to ending the war. They are irredeemably compromised among broad segments of the population, and they are innately divisive rather than unifying. Let me also underscore that neither Kier nor Machar can be excluded while the other remains. The United States tacit support for Kier's removal of Machar from the transitional government, an effort to isolate him, has unwittingly given Kier a blank check to pursue an increasingly militant policy of Dinka domination. It has also signaled to all those who oppose Kier that there is no political pathway to end the war 
and that violent overthrow of Kyr's regime is their only means of self-preservation. We should not, therefore, underestimate that the already horrific war could escalate into genocide at any time. Too many of the warning signs are already there. My proposal, therefore, is predicated on a clear diagnosis that South Sudan has failed, at great cost to its people and with increasingly grave implications for regional security, including the stability of important U.S. partners in the Horn of Africa. Mr. Chairman, South Sudan has ceased to perform even the minimal functions and responsibilities of a sovereign state. Nearly one-third of the country has been displaced or sought refuge outside, and at least 200,000 people are sheltering under the UN's protection inside. 40% of the population faces severe hunger, including pockets of famine. Sadly, there has been no methodical effort to calculate the number of civilian deaths caused by South Sudan's war, even though there are indications that hundreds of thousands of civilians may have already died. U.S. policy must be calibrated commensurate to the magnitude of this challenge. A fundamentally different approach is needed, one that protects South Sudan's sovereignty and territorial integrity while empowering the citizens of South Sudan to take ownership of their future, absent the predations of a morally bankrupt elite. Mr. Chairman, in light of these, uh, the absence of any national unifying political leaders, the only remaining path towards these objectives is to establish an international transitional administration under a UN and African Union executive mandate for the country for a finite period of time. Though seemingly radical, international administration is not at all unprecedented and has been previously employed to guide countries out of conflict, including sovereign states. Cambodia, Kosovo, East Timor are some of the most prominent examples. Brokering such a transition will require committed diplomacy by the United States in close partnership with African governments. But it would not necessitate an investment costlier than the current approach, and in fact promises a better chance of success. Like a patient in critical condition, restoring South Sudan to viability can only be done by putting the country, even more so, on external life support, and gradually withdrawing that assistance over time, as Ambassador Lyman and I have written. Since 2005, the United States has, in fact, devoted more than $11 billion to help South Sudanese secure self-determination, and there is currently no end in sight. And while these contributions have saved millions of lives, South Sudan's citizens and U.S. taxpayers deserve a better return on that investment than the catastrophe that we see today. A UN and AU transitional administration could only come about if Kira Machar are induced to renounce any role in South Sudanese politics, which they will do if presented with a sufficiently robust package of disincentives for remaining on the scene. <coughs> These would include the credible threat of prosecution by the International Criminal Court or the hybrid court envisioned under the current peace agreement, but presently stalled. Uh, the imposition of UN Security Council uh, by the UN Security Council of time-triggered travel bans and asset freezes, uh, the imposition of preemptive contract sanctions to cast a shadow on the validity of oil and other resource concessions by Kyr's regime, and a comprehensive UN arms embargo, which is long overdue. Spoilers could be marginalized through a combination of politics and force. First, by leveraging important constituencies' antipathy against Kyr, Mashar, and their cronies to gain their support for the transitional administration. And second, by deploying a lean and agile peace intervention force composed of regional states that can combat hardline elements once they have been politically isolated. Mr. Chairman, some will uh, inevitably attempt to mischaracterize UN and AU transitional administration as a violation of South Sudan's sovereignty. 
But given the increasing threats that South Sudan's dissolution poses to the interests of its immediate neighbors, the question of whether foreign governments will intervene military is becoming irrelevant. The more urgent question is what form that intervention will take. South Sudan's current trajectory is increasingly intolerable for its neighbors. Uganda, Ethiopia, Sudan, Kenya, they're bearing the brunt of the more than one million refugees that have fled South Sudan, with stimulating simmering ethnic rivalries in these states. Intra-regional tensions abound and uh, are worsened and worsen you know, by South Sudan's conflict. The United States, therefore, has two choices. Stand by while these states uh, back armed opposition groups against Kiir's increasingly militant <coughs> and transient regime, uh, or undertake their own unilateral military intervention, or otherwise carve out spheres of influence as South Sudan slips into a deeper morass. Or we can pursue a strategy that accommodates these states' legitimate interests while preserving South Sudan's sovereignty and territorial integrity and providing South Sudan citizens with an opportunity to take ownership of their future. Mr. Chairman, a diplomatic initiative toward a UN and AU transitional administration can succeed. Such an administration is in fact the only hope that the people of South Sudan have left to put an end to their unrelenting nightmare. Thank you again for inviting me here today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Farrell. Doctor, excuse me. Yeah, Mr. Chair, thank you very much. And one is so delighted having opportunity again to make a statement before your committee. I hope I will make a sense of the complex situation and to paint what the future holds for South Sudan. I want to reiterate that the peace agreement that was signed, although it is in a bad health, remains the only viable option of putting Southern Sudan on the track of peace. Any other option, in my view, is a recipe for more human suffering and loss of innocent life. It is agreement that has been unanimously approved by the parliament. It is facilitated by the EGAD as well by the African Union, Troika including the US government and the international community. It is agreement that enjoys the unanimous support of the member state of the, unit of the Security Council. Indeed, as you rightly put it, the eruption of conflict in July 2016 showed that this agreement lacks a will, political will, particularly from a small group of elements, anti-peace agreement, that are actually championing this opposition to the peace and driving the agenda of violence and to benefit themselves from this violence. In the case of government of Southern Sudan, these elements use not only political rhetoric and, 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 and the sentiment against the friends of South Sudan, but they have been exploiting public initiative during the war to benefit themselves. I hope the UN panel of experts on Sudan to dig out the link between these elements and how they benefit from this war. These anti-peace elements also that actually even not respecting the president of the republic, their own president, producing contra contrary statement about the president reconciliatory positions. Then the real challenge is how can we re-engineer the police political will? Few suggestions. The US should aim at strengthening the supporters of peace, winning over the undecided in the government, and isolating the anti-element, both in the government and in the opposition. The SPLM in opposition 
is divided after the appointment of Taban Dengai as the first vice president. Although we are seeing some positive signs that they are working together and developing a new spirit for the full implementation of this agreement, yet the U.S. government, through the Joint Monitoring and Evalu uh, Mon uh, Joint Evaluation Commission, should abide by this provision of the agreement and to work towards maintaining stability and unity among the warring parties. It is in the interest of people of South Sudan and the peace that the parties to the agreement must be united. Also, the United Nations mission in Southern Sudan, UNAMIS, plays a very important role. Despite its shortcomings, Southern Sudan is better off with the presence of United Nations mission in South Sudan. However, there is a need to consolidate its mandate and to work effectively with the, with the transitional government to fully implement this peace agreement. The deployment of regional forces is one of the ways of strengthening this mandate of the United Nations mission. And with the consent of the government of South Sudan, we should expedite the deployment of these forces. After the cooperation that was shown by the government and the president himself to the, to the, regional, to the Security Council, I think the U.S. government should start now building new relationship with the government in order to commit themselves for implementing peace agreement. Yes, it is through the peace in bad health. What if it fails? The violent conflict will come in, more human suffering. Currently, the SPLM in opposition seem to be planning for the option of war if peace is declared dead. But even Dr. Lama called, who was championing the uh, non-violent opposition, he's left with nothing but to opt out from this non-violent opposition. So what can the international community do? First, we should not expect the international community to be watching, but they should act in order to prevent the eruption of new violence in South Sudan. The recent EGAD initiative of deployment of these UN forces, of, of these regional forces, and the consent of the government of South Sudan is a very important step to rescue this peace agreement from collapsing. And with these efforts, with this government, of US government, I think the, the and maybe I disagree with, uh, with Kate, in, not in, uh, in terms of direction, but in terms of whether it is this uh, proposal is currently the option, given the international community are focusing on the implementation of peace agreement. But it should be an option that we should be keeping in our mind if worst comes to the worst. And on the other hand, the prospect that the international community might at a certain point have to intervene should encourage the parties to the agreement to implement it, because that threat is very important. But equally important, I think, I, even, even, with, even with political will, we need a robust technical and financial support to sustain and to make the peace uh, initiative, make this peace attractive and have the dividends of peace. But we need people to work in that way. And in this regard, the recent legislation to facilitate the return of qualified Southern Sudanese diaspora is a positive and, and, uh, and a good step and should be encouraged. Now, on the political reforms, who to supervise it? I know there are a lot of debate. We have the options of either the two leaders to supervise the political reforms. This is provided for in the peace agreement, or either of them to step down, or the third, two of them, 
But Mr. Chairman, I know you cannot do this one without the consent of these people. Because the peace agreement and these two leaders, they should be encouraged to be held responsible to implement this peace agreement. Because these are the options available with us, ahead of us. Failing to do that, well, then now we can talk about other options. Or if possible, the international community through its diplomatic leverage to convince either of them or two of them to give way for new leaders to come, but with their consent or the consent of the political parties. I think there's that opportunity with the region, like what Kate said, we can use the region in order to do the same. Let me conclude by saying that people of Southern Sudan are great people. And I think from the civil war, they may rise up from these ashes of civil war to pursue the God-given potentials to build that country. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Mr. Yeo. Uh, th uh, thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin and members of the committee. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today regarding South Sudan. Uh, I'll focus today on the role that the UN mission in South Sudan plays in protecting civilians uh, at a level unprecedented in UN history uh, and my belief that the UN mission should have taken more action to protect civilians uh, during the fighting last July. Uh, last November, I traveled to South Sudan with a congressional delegation uh, to meet with UN peacekeepers, including visits to the largest UN civilian uh, protection sites in Bentiu and Juba. The UN mission in South Sudan, which began in 2011, remains the thin blue line protecting many South Sudanese civilians from government troops and a myriad of other heavily armed militias intent on harming them. As Congressman Capuano and Higgins noted in their op-ed shortly after the de delegation's return, there are almost 200,000 civilians in the six UN peacekeeping bases, and many of them would not be alive today uh, if not for the UN's presence. The UN did not anticipate protecting 200,000 civilians when the mission was created five years ago. But when conflict erupted in December 2013 and civilians rushed into UN sites to avoid attack by troops and militias, the UN moved to protect them at a scale unprecedented in UN history and informed by the tragedies in Rwanda and Srebrenica. When I visited in November, I met a young woman who had just arrived at the Bentiu camp gate looking for protection only the UN could provide. She had left her burned out village with her two children twin baby girls after her husband was killed and she had survived a gang rape by government forces. Unfortunately, only one of her daughters lived through the arduous 80 mile journey. For the past three years, the UN mission has been severely limited in its ability to carry out its mandate. The South Sudanese government has repeatedly violated its status of forces of agreement, which guarantees free movement to UN peacekeepers. With the violent attacks on UN protection of, protection of civilian sites by government soldiers in Malakal in February, Bentiu in April, and Juba in July, the government has now moved from being a partner to predator. At times, the UN mission in South Sudan has failed to protect civilians, and it is imperative that it learn from its mistakes. In February, at the Malakal UN base, where over 40,000 South Sudanese still reside, at least 30 camp residents were killed before UN peacekeepers adequately responded. The recent attacks in July by government soldiers on international aid workers and South Sudanese civilians were also unconscionable. Those responsible for those horrendous crimes 
must be punished. The UN peacekeepers should have done more to protect civilians in Juba, both at the hotel terrain and for the women leaving the camp in search of food. They did not. The UN is conducting an independent inquiry headed by Major General Patrick Khmer from the Netherlands as we speak, uh, which will result in a report with recommendations. It is worth noting several factors which contributed to the UN mission's inability to protect in these circumstances. While the dirt road between UN House and the hotel, is, uh, hotel terrain is only a kilometer, uh, I drove it in November, it was ground central for the fighting between government soldiers and the opposition. Hundreds of soldiers lined the road along with government tanks and government attack helicopters were hovering above UN House, firing into the nearby opposition base. UN peacekeepers were working to protect the 35,000 South Sudanese civilians inside the two protectionist civilian sites located at UN House, which had been hit by more than 200 rounds during the fighting. Furthermore, the Chinese battalion's quick reaction force was responding to soldiers who were severely injured by government attacks the previous day, two of whom later died. Given the UN's extremely limited medevac capabilities, the government's belligerence towards the mission and the worsening security situation, some UN peacekeepers believed that they would have been left to bleed to death if they had to fight their way to the hotel terrain. As the UN conducts its inquiry, the UN mission, troop contributing countries and the Security Council must consider some important questions to resolve key issues. Is the mission willing and able to engage in active combat against the government, the UN's host in South Sudan, to protect civilians? What are the implications of large-scale active combat between the UN and the SPLA to long-term future of the mission and its ability to protect civilians? Can the Security Council finally move towards an arms embargo? With the possible deployment of 4,000 new UN peacekeepers uh, could be a positive development in an otherwise bleak landscape. If the government continues to place severe restrictions on the mission, then the new troops may not have an impact on security in Juba. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, these are indeed dark days for innocent civilians in South Sudan. Those who have already been attacked and the hundreds of thousands still in need of protection. The UN mission, troop contributing countries, and the Security Council must thoroughly review the mission, its mandate, milita military capacities, command and control structure, and rules of engagement to ensure that it can best protect civilians. All global players must continue to pressure the government of South Sudan, in fact, all warring parties, to stop the killing of civilians and return to partnership with the United Nations. Thank you. Thank you, and thank all of you for that great testimony. Um, I want to commend the ranking member on an excellent op-ed that was just published on this very topic and defer to him now on questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank all four of you for your, your insight. Uh, you certainly raise a lot of questions as to how we can be effective. One thing is clear to me, uh, we will not abandon the people of South Sudan. They're in critical need, and they need the international community. But it does raise whether our aid program, whether the UN peacekeepers are effective or not. I'm all for peacekeepers, I'm all for humanitarian assistance and governance assistance, but if it's not carrying out its purpose, then we have to look for other means to accomplish those ends. And 
imposing sanctions may very well be needed including arms embargoes and governance issues so we will look at all those issues quite frankly i agree with you the circumstances are challenging i'm not sure they're that complex you've got corrupt leaders in a corrupt country where they're more concerned about themselves and their people you have leaders who are committing war crimes when you use your civilian as military tactics that's a war crime when you allow your military to gang rape civilian populations that's a war crime these are and i appreciate we should threaten to hold them accountable. No, we shouldn't. We should hold them accountable. Too many times we said we're going to hold perpetrators accountable, and we have not held them accountable. Uh, so the current leadership needs to be held accountable because it's impossible for me to believe this type of conduct is taking place without the president or vice president fully complicitous in these operations. So uh, culpability needs to be uh, accounted for and we need to move forward. Now, several of you mentioned looking for a new uh, governance structure and imposing arms embargo. I'd like to get uh, sort of perhaps drill down a little bit on an arms embargo and what impact it would have as, as, as a practical matter. But I also want to get into the governance issues, imposing some type of a trusteeship to the country. The historic examples normally follow uh, international forces or a country uh, in East Timor, if I'm correct, I think Australia went in originally, then the UN came in later. Certainly in Kosovo, NATO was actively engaged before the governance structure. We don't have that capacity in South Sudan. So I'm not exactly sure how you get to that point where you could have an effectively controlled uh, UN uh, trusteeship of sorts imposed. So I, I would just ask if you, uh, briefly if you could respond to whether a UN-imposed arms embargo uh, could effectively change the equation here, uh, whether it's realistic to expect that we could impose a governance structure considering the current status on the grounds, and whether there are any other significant changes in strategy that we should be considering in order to protect the people of South Sudan. Uh, well, just start. Don't, don't, I can't pronounce your names as well as the chairman, so. <laughs> Thank you very much. The, my, my, my position on the arms embargo or any kind of sanction uh, is that uh, having listened and, and read the pulse of South Sudanese politics for many years, I feel that the, it would be very, very divisive. And not just divisive uh, between the political leaders, those in government who are opposing and those in opposition who are for it, but also among the population in the sense that those who are supporting would be, would be seen as, 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 as the ones who are selling the country to international community. There is a lot of anti-intervention rhetoric rising in South Sudan, all across South Sudan. So I think it would, it would inflame those differences much further, um, especially if it is something that the government uh, is opposed to, the government can always rally people behind it and say, those people over there are selling our country. Um, thank you very much for the question. Uh, I do think an arms embargo uh, is necessary, can be effective. Uh, it's long, 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 long overdue, the fact that either side, any side, there are more than two at this point uh, in the conflict, can continue to procure weapons. And we know, in fact, that the government 
most particularly is procuring heavy weapons, including jets, since the formation of the transitional government of national unity, and that they're using these heavy weapons against their civilian population. You know, so the fact that we would you know, even discuss sending more peacekeepers into that scenario where we're not also stopping them from procuring weapons you know, seems uh, completely disconnected. You know, a second point on the effectiveness of an arms embargo, there are not that many points of entry in South Sudan where you can bring in uh, truly heavy uh, equipment and munitions. Yes, small arms, light weapons can move across borders, very porous, uh, that we won't uh, have a good set, uh, chance at monitoring and probably stopping very much of. But uh, this other kind of uh, uh, procurement that's going on, uh, there aren't that many airstrips that can handle that uh, uh, level of equipment, uh, the roads uh, don't exist uh, outside the one that the United States helped to build uh, for the most part from Uganda into Juba. Uh, and so it's, it's not as complicated as it might seem in other places and it has been done effectively uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, other uh, circumstances. Um, and then thirdly on an arms embargo, it's necessary as a signal uh, to all the parties and to the people of South Sudan that the international community, the United States, we find this conflict uh, utterly beyond the pale morally. There is no right side here uh, and no one should be uh, continuing to arm themselves uh, to uh, pursue violence uh, as a means towards their political ends. Yeah, and so yeah, I do think it's an important part of the overall calculus <coughs> that gets us to a place where we could uh, then discuss uh, an alternate form of governance uh, for South Sudan. Uh, a trusteeship, uh, an international transitional administration can't be imposed uh, on South Sudan. That is not what I'm suggesting. Uh, I do think that's beyond uh, any realm of, of possibility or uh, usefulness, frankly. But I do think that the people of South Sudan, they want to be fed. They want to be able to feed themselves, uh, more importantly. Uh, they want to go about their lives the way that they uh, uh, do, whether that's fishing, herding, going to a business in the city, uh, whatever that is. You know, they don't have the daily safety and the security to do that. They don't have any services from their government to support and enable their livelihoods. And an international administration uh, would in fact make it easier for you know, the international assistance that already does provide most of that assistance just, that exists. I, I know my time so. is up. I would just make the observation, I agree with your assessment, but if the leaders are not going to agree to it, it's hard to mobilize the people in the current political situ security situation in the country to be able to get the people effectively to um, encourage international action for a trusteeship. So I, I just think it's going to be very challenging to bring that about. Senator Cardin, it's going to take more than sanctioning six individuals. Yeah. That's what we've done so far. Oh, I agree with that. So. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I want to make sure I understood what each of you were saying. As I understood, Dr. Kuo, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Um, you argue that the peace agreement was still viable. As I understood everybody else on the panel, you all disagree with that. Is that correct? Yes, I believe that's correct. And I understood the rest of you correctly? No, I, uh, I'm, I'm saying that there is a room for South Sudanese leaders to be, to be pushed to come up with a program that would steer their country out of this crisis. Uh, uh, under the current agreement? Under, under the, current the current agreement, yes. Peace agreement? Yeah. Hmm. I didn't understand you to say that. Uh, uh, if I could, uh, how, how would you push them? I mean, I, it's, it just sounds... Oh, 
Okay, like so, so already the country is now broke, right? And they are relying on foreign aid to feed their people. This continua continuation of this support can be predicated on them coming up with a program, which is a, a national homegrown program that will help the country get out of this. And then what they will do is ask for support, which will be built based on producing a credible prioritized program that says by year one we will have achieved this, by year two we'll have achieved this. So that what, uh, what they are doing is actually uh, their own plan. What the international community is doing is supporting that plan. After the international community has verified it and investigated and saw and found it credible and implementable. Thank you for letting me intervene there. Thank you. I'm still not clear how, how we achieve that and maybe it's through what you suggested, Ms. Knopf, which is the transitional administration. And you suggested that in order for that to be successful, <coughs> it would have to be supported by the UN and the African Union. Um, is there support at the UN and the AU to do that? It's, it's currently not under discussion at the UN and the AU. Uh, it's a proposal that has been made publicly now by Ambassador Lyman, the former Special Envoy, and myself uh, in an op-ed uh, in July uh, after the outbreak of this fighting. Uh, there are private discussions uh, taking place about it, uh, and I do think there is uh, support that can be found within the region uh, and that it's not uh, uh, outside the realm of, of possibility for uh, both regional and certainly it's not outside of precedent for the UN Security Council to do this to help a country out of conflict. Mr. Yo, you're agreeing with that? I, I agree. Uh, at the moment, the discussion in Security Council is around stabilizing the situation in South Sudan through the deployment of a this uh, regional protection force, uh, which is, uh, has some upsides and some significant downsides if it still has to operate under the same conditions that are facing UN peacekeepers in South Sudan. But I do think that uh, if the uh, uh, regional protection force uh, is not agreed to by the government of South Sudan and there are not any other type of meaningful steps forward in terms of the peace process, then uh, the Security Council will indeed have to consider whether there should be discussion around moving towards the next step, which is uh, towards more of a protectorate. And who is, I, I understood you to say that the uh, special envoy, as well as yourself, is arguing for that. Is there anyone at the um, Security Council, at the UN, who is arguing for that? Is that the position of the United States? And our policy to try and make that happen? Uh, just to be clear, the former special envoy. I'm so, sorry. Uh, yeah. not, not a sitting uh, p uh, official, and it is not the policy of the United States uh, to, to push for this at this time. What is the policy of the United States at this time? Well, uh, as I said, um, at the moment, the administration uh, continues to focus on trying to move forward with this uh, stabilization effort through the regional protection force, and then ultimately trying to move all of the political parties back towards a negotiated solution. Uh, but I would think that it's important to ask the State Department and U.S. mission to the U.N. directly as to what they realistically see our next steps. The, the Security Council will next consider this in mid-October. Um, and uh, at the moment, uh, the Secretary General of the U.N., Ban Ki-moon, is awaiting a report uh, from the former president of Botswana, uh, who has been tasked to put together a report on how to deploy this regional protection force. As you know, the, the Security Council went to South Sudan, they got agreement from the government to deploy 4,000 new troops, uh, and then since then, 
Uh, there have been extensive discussions about where the troops are going to come from and how they'll be armed and what their mission will be. So there's a report due to the security uh, to the Secretary General and the Security Council will consider this again in mid-October. And is it fair to say that the that approach is not working? Uh, from my perspective, I do not believe the approach is working. But does anybody think it is on the panel? We haven't seen much progress since. So uh, because as the timeline that he has described. Uh, we, there is no report that says, yes, this has been achieved. Uh, what was supposed to happen after the visit of the Security Council ab ab ambassadors was for renegotiation of the modalities of implementation uh, of deployment, but that has not happened yet. Maybe just let me, I just want to put counterfactual statement. I think your, the point, your, your point is very valid. I think the most important, what can we do rather than what we intend to do? And this is my belief that how shaky is this peace agreement? It is something that we should invest in it. It is something we can do. And that's why I focus on this element, anti-peace. If the US government, through its influence, to have sanctions on these few elements, I think we, may, we are likely to see the difference. But there's but disagreement among your panel members as to whether that's, that is in fact what might happen. I mean, as I understand, the other members of the panel, they but don't equal, agree with that. Equally important, even the option of having whatever option international. I just want to give example of the UN Security Council. I was working on ABA, and I pursue it from Hague to wherever until I reach New York. No consensus. Leave alone, even ABA, the people of ABA, they, they conducted their own referendum. Look at what happened to Crimea. Russia refusing even to accept the referendum of the people of ABA while they accepted the one of, of Crimea. It is a very clear difference that things may not move. And that's why I believe the US government has a chance of doing through its own what they can be able to do. One of them is issue of sanction on these individuals. As, as of now, people are not even hearing what, what you can be able to do. Because if you talk about something very big, the region must have consensus, we cannot have. Sudan government has its own interest to finish the government of South Sudan. And you cannot have a consensus in, in the region. If you go to the Security Council, you may not get it. Even the sanction, uh, arms embargo, is so difficult to build a consensus. Even some people committing, violating the agreement, not even an action to impose sanctions. That consensus is not there. I know my time is up, Mr. Chairman, but can I just ask, what happens if the international community leaves entirely? Well, I can address the specific issue of the UN mission. As I said, there are 200,000 civilians uh, currently being protected by UN peacekeepers in South Sudan. If the mission there were to leave, then those 200,000 would be very much at risk uh, uh, in terms of their personal security, either from the government or from other militias uh, that are heavily armed uh, throughout the country. Uh, and certainly, if the UN mission were to wind down, we would need a plan to make sure that those 200,000 civilians have a place to go so that they would not be killed as the peacekeepers left the country. Does everybody agree with that, basically? C certainly that there are some individuals receiving protection from the international uh, presence at the moment, uh, but uh, I think to Jock's point in his uh, statement, uh, there is a very serious question as to are we in the long term uh, prolonging the situation by, uh, by Band-Aid approaches, right? Uh, and so while some people's lives are being saved, uh, and we don't want to uh, minimize that, uh, we really, on every metric, the situation in South Sudan is deteriorated, and it continues to deteriorate. 
since the signing of the peace agreement, since nine months later, the formation of the transitional government, since uh, several months after that, uh, the first vice president was replaced by the other first vice president. Nothing improves the situation. It continues to get worse. And so we have a choice to stay where we are and the path that's not seemingly effective, move towards a path that I'm suggesting, or the alternative is that we pull back and, uh, and we, we let the conflict take its course uh, at a pretty significant cost to the people of South Sudan, but maybe in the longer run, then uh, uh, we'll be forced to, to come back around to, to some other uh, solution that helps restore South Sudan to viability, or it will be Eastern Congo or Somalia for a long, long time. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for some really great testimony. I think you can hear us trying to um, divine the differences between the four of your recommendations, and to a certain extent it seems to come down to what mix of carrots and sticks we're trying to use to change behavior. Uh, so, Dr. Uh, Jacques, I think you heard some pushback from the chairman on this notion that things will change if we just apply conditionality to aid. Uh, a lot of people would suggest that that's essentially the policy that we have tried so far, that we have put in almost $2 billion worth of aid. We have attached conditions on it. We never give that away for free. And yet we are still in a state of, uh, of spiraling crisis. So if you could just maybe specifically respond to some of the things that um, Ms. Knopf was saying in that she's recommending that this is the moment in which you have to use more sticks or at least a lot of sticks in addition to carrots uh, here. You suggested that maybe the arms embargo is not the right move, but what, what are the role for, um, for a message of consequence versus a message of conditionality attached to aid and, and speak to our reluctance to support that uh, path forward given that it hasn't worked so well in the past? Thank you, sir. Um, I, I, I think the, 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 the idea that uh, international community pulling away from South Sudan as a way to force them to think for themselves, uh, there are avenues to it. One is that the government is engaged in discussions with the IMF right now, because without any international financial assistance, that government is not going to, to have a capacity to deliver anything. There's no money in the country whatsoever. So in that discussion where the government might get some financial assistance, a uh, loan or what have you, uh, it, it should definitely be uh, put uh, through to the government that you can only get it if you do X, uh, Y, and Z. Uh, or but, 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 haven't, but haven't we done that? Not really, uh, because the, if you, you might have done it in terms of direct assistance to the government, into the bureaucracy of the government. But the, f the flow of money into humanitarian aid is still benefiting the government, uh, the country as a whole. Uh, and so um, w one way you might do that, push that conditionality without compromising the lives of South Sudanese is actually to inject that aid directly into projects run by South Sudanese, probably South Sudanese Americans. Uh, the, 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 the program that uh, many South Sudanese Americans have created schools and hospitals and, 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 and many, many kinds of local projects. Uh, and if money was injected directly into those programs, uh, and these are the programs that you see in the countryside, uh, all over South Sudan, these are programs that are showing results. 
and, and, and money doesn't get wasted through the government bureaucracy, it doesn't get stolen because it goes directly into the project. So that might be a balance. Uh, uh, the, the threat of withdrawing humanitarian aid is only s so good as um, the concern that leaders show for the people who are receiving the benefit of that aid. There's not a lot of evidence to suggest that the leaders today are persuaded to change their behavior in order to effectuate better living conditions for the people of South Sudan. Ms. Um, uh, Knopf, can I just ask you to talk about what happens on the other side of the transitional government that you're recommending? You've thrown some cold water in your testimony on the possibility of power sharing. Um, and maybe power sharing doesn't work today, but won't there have to be some power sharing agreement on the other side of a transitional international government? How do you get around the inevitability of, uh, of different elements being part of a government coming on the backside of what you're recommending? Sure. Um, I, I think the, the point uh, for me, the critical thing about an international transitional administration is that uh, we would be borrowing both capacity and borrowing legitimacy uh, in terms of uh, delivering services, administering uh, basic uh, um, uh, public governance uh, for the people of South Sudan, which is, you know, uh, at a very, very low level right now. Again, most South Sudanese are just trying to survive. Yeah, so we're trying to stabilize that situation, create some space for the economy to come back for daily safety and security you know, to exist for the people of South Sudan, and then critically for several important processes to take place. Uh, a constitutional process where the people of South Sudan can participate in a dialogue and a conversation on what they want from their government. That's never happened. It's never happened. Yeah, and so what the state should look like on the other end of a transitional administration should come from the people of South Sudan and what they want from the central government, what they want from state and more local level government. Yeah, and by taking the competition over the prize of the presidency uh, and the very few resources uh, that uh, uh, one gets by winning that prize at the moment, take that off the table for a, a, a long breathing space, 10 to 15 years. Uh, and uh, reconciliation uh, and accountability have to happen. This conversation and a constitutional process has to happen. Uh, while uh, an advisory committee of uh, South Sudanese, of course, have to be part of uh, the overall uh, advice of the country and uh, the technical administration of it, but the efforts and the focus needs to be on these other processes. 10 to 15 years, was it Ab what you were recommending? Absolutely, yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. So just to pursue that a little further, I, I'm not, I, first of all, appreciate everyone's testimony, David. How, how, how do you get a government that is enriching itself presently, um, how in the world do you get people to agree? I mean, this is the way they want things currently. They're doing it with armed forces and genocide and rape. So how do you just pose uh, some kind of transitional government. I, it just, it seems nice, but undoable. So I don't think we can impose it uh, without sending much tougher messages to the leadership of South Sudan and putting hard constraints on their behavior, which we have not done. We haven't done that. We have targeted sanctions on six individuals of, you know, medium significance, shall we say. Uh, and uh, for the rest of them, uh, they all continue uh, to prey upon their country at will. Uh, this is a government now that we need to think about, like we thought about Khartoum with Darfur, like we think about other countries 
uh, where the government preys on its people. That's what it does. It is not a partner for development assistance. We should not be supporting IMF financial bailout packages for them. We should not be entertaining anything that we would in a normal development relationship. Now, I was the first USAID mission director for Sudan and South Sudan when we reopened the mission in the United States in 2005-2006 after the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Now, everything that we used to fight against Khartoum for the people of South Sudan, this government is now doing uh, against its own people, and we are not sending clear signals and messages back to them. So, of course, they will resist. But we have to change their calculus, uh, and we have to, to put something that's attractive and what the people of South Sudan, I think, ultimately want. They want this space uh, to resume their lives. So it, is, it does require a, a pretty fundamental change in approach in order to get from here to there. We can't do it from where we are right now. What, what, how would you assess the U.S. role right now in South Sudan and whether our role there is today constructive or destructive? I, I, I think that um, the United States is a, a critical uh, partner for South Sudan. Uh, we truly have been, as you well know, and uh, this Congress uh, uh, has supported over the years uh, the $11 billion of assistance, the political support to get to the Comprehensive Peace Agreement for self-determination for the people of South Sudan, uh, on and on and on. And, and the ongoing aid levels are still significant. But in your earlier comments, you were talking about withdrawing. I, I do think that we have to, I think we've crossed a lot of red lines lately. Uh, the attacks on the train compound, on aid workers, on journalists, uh, uh, Sudanese, South Sudanese and American and, and others alike, beyond the pale, uh, completely outrageous. Never mind all of the other harassment and obstructions that this government is placing on the aid operation. I, I, I truly uh, find it uh, astonishing that we tolerate uh, that level how, how would us withdrawing our ambassador uh, from the country, um, how would that affect things on the ground? I, I think uh, well, I, 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 Jock could, and others could answer, but I think that would send a very significant message. Uh, would that be a positive message? I, I think, um, I, I think, in my view, uh, things are so bad and the situation can get so much worse uh, that we need to send every difficult message that we can think to send at this point, but it has to be in the context of an overall policy to back that up. So just uh, uh, withdrawing the ambassador uh, as a one-off uh, piece of a policy uh, uh, doesn't necessarily improve the situation. But uh, if we undertake uh, to send a clear message to President Kier, to his uh, current uh, advisors and leadership uh, to the leadership of the opposition that this situation cannot and will not be tolerated, uh, then that message uh, could well be advanced by withdrawing the ambassador. And I think that any type of discussion of withdrawal of the ambassador has to be done in the context of the key players, both in the Security Council and in the region, so that there is an effective approach towards the next step in terms of South Sudan, as opposed to withdrawing American leadership in terms of resolving this, um, you know, very difficult situation. So I, I, I would just agree that everything that we do in terms of our own diplomatic presence has to be done in close coordination with the other key players in the region. Uh, and as part of a broader American strategy as to what is the next step in terms of our approach towards resolving this horrendous situation in South Sudan. I, I would just note that at every possible stage in terms of the humanitarian aid situation, the government continues to throw up massive hurdles to the delivery of aid to its own people. There are 1.4, 1.6 million people that are, have been displaced from their homes in, in South Sudan 
and their primary lifeline is UN humanitarian assistance, and the government at every stage makes it difficult through rules and regulations and other procedures to actually deliver this aid. Uh, so this is something that really needs to be considered as part of a broader strategy at our next step with South Sudan. Senator Cardin uh, defined a war criminal earlier, um, and it seemed that the entire panel agreed that the leadership there now, um, by definition, uh, they are war criminals. Do, do the, does the panel agree with that 100%? Let, let me, I will come back to this peace agreement. But let me just ask you that question first. I mean, is the current president of South Sudan, by definition, a war criminal? And that's why it's provided in, because it's very difficult to make a judgment, but there is a commission of inquiry of South Commission of Inquiry, African Union Commission of Inquiry. That is the basis of, upon which you can have evidence. And that's why it needs to be implemented. And the commission came out with a very clear recommendation about this hybrid call. And this hybrid call will use the evidence provided by the commission as well as the human rights uh, reports. And it is on the basis of that when now you can talk about the issues of who is the year who to be brought to the justice. The, the African Union Commission of Inquiry, led by former Nigerian President, President uh, Obasanjo, uh, did find that President Salva Kiir and Riek Machar are both uh, uh, guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And uh, one of the steps that that report recommends that has not been acted upon uh, is the establishment of a hybrid court uh, that would then look at uh, all the perpetrators of uh, and decide uh, in what, who should be prosecuted for what. There is no question that horrible things have been done and that somebody has to account for them. But uh, it is, it is uh, and, and, the only, and the only judgment we can make can only be based on, on the investigation to assign blame because right now blame can be assigned generally to SPLA or to uh, opposition armies, but those are not human persons to be held accountable. We have to pin some of these things on individuals and that can only be done through this investigation. I would just associate myself with Kate's remark that this determination has already been made. Uh, and when you look at the specific issue of, um, for instance, what happened to the um, uh, South Sudanese soldiers that actually conducted the attacks on the innocent civilians uh, at the train compound, but also outside the peacekeeping camp, they have yet to be punished in a meaningful way. So we know that at the highest levels, in the government of South Sudan, there's unwillingness to move forward with meaningful justice, even when presented with overwhelming evidence of crimes. So Dr. Kroll, earlier in your testimony, you were <clears throat> saying we need to encourage uh, the leadership along. It, it seems inconsistent. Um, I mean, you've got people that are conducting on both sides war crimes against the populations uh, uh, that show an affinity to the other leadership in opposite directions. I, I just, it's its hard for me to see how that's a, a path forward that, that makes a lot of sense. L I just let me, let, let me just, let me ask it maybe in a different way. So yeah. we represent the American people and I know we have all these aspirational discussions about the international community and the United Nations, but the, the people that we represent are, you know, the people here in our own country, and I don't know, I would assume audiences tuning in from uh, across America, having someone advocate that we continue to support people that are conducting genocide and 
mass rape and other kinds of things against their people, encouraging them along would have some issue with that. And, and so, I, and again, at the same time, I, not to be offensive, the the imposition uh, upon people that are not willing of a, some kind of trans transitional government or neo transitional government also sounds somewhat far-fetched, no offense. Um, I, I just, I don't see a solution here that makes a, a great deal of sense. But you, you still think we ought to encourage them along on the peace process. Let me go back to the issues of the peace agreement generally in the world. It's usually between agreement between the elites. It's a between, power between, between the elites. Elites, elites. About, uh, elites actually, yeah. power sharing of the elites. It's a fact of the matter. And these very elites, in most cases, participated in war. Look for the comprehensive peace agreement. It was signed by the Sudan government, Bashir, and they expelled it. But there was no other option, except they have to work together in order to implement the peace agreement, the, uh, the comprehensive peace agreement. So I think the fact that some of these leaders who actually participated in war, becoming the makers of peace, depending on the leverage that we have on them, because the moment the other option is, if can we do without them? That's the question. Because if we do without, without them, it would be the easiest way. But if you cannot do, the peace agreement, in fact, is providing the issues of accountability and justice. And that's why there is this hybrid court, even in the peace agreement. The problem, what leverage can we do in order to, to influence these, these leaders? I want to build what Kate said also on this issue of the leverage we can have in the region. These two leaders, if you have all these accounts of what they have committed, it is a high time the, the, the region to exert diplomatic pressure on them based on the facts on the table so that they can give way for, the, uh, for, 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 for new people to come. Because otherwise, when we say we, can we cannot impose anything on them, but we cannot even use violence in order to remove them. And the only possible option for us, it is this peace agreement that we can exploit. First, to bring justice, to expose them, and to make sure that they are known and the people they know that there is even in, uh, internal dynamics of making them accountable. Mr. Chairman, I, I would just observe, I think the chances of the current leaders in South Sudan holding the perpetrators of atrocities accountable, including themselves, is close to zero. And I think that's the reality. You can have all the findings. Um, it's going to be more and more challenging as time goes by to have the necessary documentation preserved for accountability. There's going to be more and more pressure to try to work out some accommodations with the existing leaders, and they're not going to be interested in holding their leaders accountable for the atrocities that they have committed. And it is also very clear, it's been documented not just by the commission you're referring to, but by so many first-party accounts uh, of, uh, of what happened and, and who was there, who watched it, who allowed these atrocities to take place, that this was condoned by the leadership of South Sudan. So, you know, I, I thought your suggestion, I think you know, recalling our ambassador for that type of conduct is, is, it would be an appropriate response to show that we don't want to have a mission headed by an ambassador where there is no, where there's impunity uh, for that type of conduct. I think that's just one, one, one aspect of this. I do think, I said earlier, we don't want to abandon the people of South Sudan, so I, 
I think the UN mission, which is the most active uh, uh, international effort, uh, that we really need to work to see whether we can't get the cooperation so the mission can do its work in South Sudan. Obviously, if they can't do it safely, then we have to look at Plan B, and we have to look at removing the mission and safely protecting the people who are currently uh, under the protectorate. Uh, but I think it's important if we could get that mission uh, effectively uh, operating in, in, in South Sudan. I think we have to also empower and protect the civil societies who are providing most of the humanitarian aid, and we have to support that strongly because we know their intentions are to help the people and not just to divert the resources for their own gain. So I think there are things that can be done, but fundamentally, I, I've lost confidence in the peace process. I think Senator Shaheen's question about trying to, you know, I, I really don't believe this peace process can go forward. I think we're gonna have to look at a restart here. Uh, I don't believe the current leaders are capable of bringing their country into peace. We haven't talked about, uh, I think it's Mr. Dang, the, the, the new vice president, who as I understand has no constituency, is part of a corrupt corruption which has been pretty well documented and um, is terribly unpopular. Uh, if I'm right on those assumptions, I don't see how he's a healing force to try to bring together the type of, of uh, respect for the process. So I think in all those areas, uh, we need to really rethink uh, where we are. The one thing is also clear to me, Mr. Chairman, continuing the current policies without change makes little sense and I'm for protecting as many people as we possibly can, but long-term we're not doing a service if we don't have a game plan for the country to be viable. Uh, I personally believe an arms embargo is, is, is something that should have been done a long time ago, and I, I really do think the United States should pursue that, and I will uh, hope that we can be somewhat helpful with our uh, delegation to see whether we can't move that along a little bit further. On a personal note, if I might, um, one of our staff people, Mr. Chairman, this is her last um, meeting with us, Janelle Johnson. Um, she's been here for three years, uh, doing great work, and is moving on to the U.S. Holocaust Museum. We'd like to wish her the only the best. Thank you very Thank much you. for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, and uh, best wishes there. It's an outstanding organization. I know you'll make it even better than it is, and thank you for your service here. I'm going to ask a couple more questions. I know we've had a lot going on, and please don't feel like you need to stay. Um, I, I, I don't want to give the impression that I think, you know, withdrawing our ambassador is the solution. I realize there's got to be follow-ons uh, that go with that. And I will say there's been numbers of people that, as we talked about an arms embargo, believe that um, much of it was still flowing to the country from Uganda. That doesn't mean that... Uh, that it's not something that should be taken up. You know, I, I think about U.S. foreign policy. We've been really involved in the creation of South Sudan, right? I and mean, we've had a long history. There was, you know, Jack Danforth was highly involved, and then people came on behind. I remember one of my first trips uh, to uh, Sudan and Darfur. Uh, this was really the focus of the future of, of South Sudan and how the central bank, how, how all this was going to be set up and work, how they were going to get oil out of the country, they were landlocked, how they're going to negotiate a transport agreement through Sudan itself. But just to step back, since all of you are experts uh, in this area, 
We haven't had, uh, and this is through different administrations over 15 or 16 years, um, we just haven't had a lot of foreign policy successes. Um, it's not a partisan statement. We just have not as a nation. I'm just wondering, uh, just, uh, I know we've got some critical issues that need to be dealt with here. Y'all shed a lot of light on it. We're going to uh, talk further and probably enlist your help in some areas. But just stepping back uh, 10, 20, 30,000 feet, um, I mean, we've been highly involved here, highly involved through every step of the way, the vote, the peace process. And we've got chaos on our hand. We have people that uh, are being harmed greatly right now by brutal people who are very self-serving. Can you shed some light uh, just on some observations about um, in this particular focused area, um, just some observations about our leadership and, and uh, some of the things that we might think about differently as we move through troubled areas like this? You mean in foreign policy generally in terms of self Well, as it relates to just here, this, but we could go, I mean, that would take days, I think. Sure. But, um, uh, I would just uh, on Sudan itself, yeah, yeah. South Sudan. Yeah, I, I would say that um, what happened uh, in terms of the successes in terms of moving Liberia forward and Timor-Leste are important messages as we think about moving forward with South Sudan, which is in both cases, um, there was a focus on making sure that the regional players were willing to be leaders to resolve the situation in terms of the situation, uh, a country on the border. So we need the regional players, as they have been, to continue to step up in a meaningful way. Second of all, the Security Council is, ends up becoming the most important place to coordinate global policy and approaches towards sanctions, uh, common uh, issues related to peacekeeping, and when you think about all of these countries, moving out of civil war. Um, it's the role of the uh, humanitarian actors and the development actors moving together. So the uh, multilateral approaches combined with the bilateral aid is gonna be ultimately essential. Whatever the political approach is determined to move South Sudan from point A to point B, eventually we will have to cross the bridge of meaningful uh, work with them on the humanitarian and development space. And the Security Council together with coordination mechanisms that are effective between the bilateral donors have enormous potential to make sure that money is effectively spent and done in a transparent way, and most importantly, actually has measurable results over a long period of time. At the moment, we don't have that for South Sudan because we're in the humanitarian phase, where at the moment we're just trying to keep people alive. But over five to 10 years, if we can find a, a political settlement, these types of coordination mechanisms on bilateral aid together with multilateral approaches have great potential to move the needle. I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about this, having worked very closely with Senator Danforth, with uh, uh, all of our envoys during the last administration, uh, being on the ground myself as the AID director and as the U.S. representative on the Assessment and Evaluation Commission in the early uh, years of the CPA implementation. Uh, and um, a couple of things. One, I think it was an incredible uh, victory uh, for the South Sudanese people that uh, the longest running civil war in Africa ended. Yeah, and that was the war between the North and the South that cost more than two million lives, displaced more than four million people, 
Yeah, it was a really tremendous thing yeah, to bring that to closure. Yeah, there's a lot of second guessing. Should we have supported uh, self-determination? Isn't this worse? It's not worse. It's very bad. It's pretty terrible for the people of South Sudan, and it can still get worse. Yeah, but they deserve the chance at self-determination, and they do not deserve to be held hostage now to the leadership that has misused this moment. So I think in reflecting on uh, how we got from there to where we are now, you know, we did miss some things uh, along the way in terms of the United States and the international support. Uh, and we missed that there needed to be a glide path after independence uh, to full, uh, uh, full statehood. In terms and that of seems to be a problem we continue to repeat over and over again. Is that not correct? Um, I, I think in other places we have done it. I mean, that's why there are some precedents for the International Transitional Administration, and we have done it in whole and in part. We did it differently in Liberia, we did it differently in Namibia, we did it differently in East Timor, we did it differently in Kosovo, we did it differently in Bosnia. You know, each circumstance does have its own uh, uh, peculiarities and uh, own solutions, and, and there are problems uh, and challenges with each of them. Yeah, but that shouldn't stop us tr from trying something that's more effective uh, for the people of South Sudan now going forward. Yeah, and we, we did miss that uh, for South Sudan. Uh, we focused uh, during six years of an interim period on getting to a referendum and uh, seeing if it, uh, that would really come to pass it was not a sure thing. It was not a sure thing when the CPA was signed in 2005. Yeah, and so uh, much of that six-year interim period uh, was spent on the critical benchmarks of the CPA that would get us to the referendum and then get to you know, the actual independence of the country. It was a divorce agreement between the North and the South. It was not focused on uh, uh, a social contract in South Sudan itself. What is the relationship between the state and its citizens? And it missed the point that Jock made at the beginning of his testimony about the liberation struggle and the leadership coming out of that and a lot of resources on the table very quickly. And with no history of governance and of institutions to put the checks and balances in place to constrain you know, the impulse to use those resources for other ends, you know, th that's where we are today. Mm -hmm. The Sudanese uh, <laughs> view. Let, let, me, let me focus on the U.S. because I have been in peace agreement, the CPA, how it was negotiated. And I really want to, and, we've, and we, we did some work with the um, NDI, National Democratic Institute on focus, focus group discussion to see the feeling of people <coughs> towards the people of U.S. and the other. And to tell you the truth, it has been a consistent feeling of the people of South Sudan, how they really have a very strong feeling towards the people of the United States. And it was reflected very well, especially President Bush was, ha, had shown a personal attachment to the people of South Sudan. That's the level I, I think we, we reach as people of South Sudan. And it's still remaining in the mind of people. And that's why it's very important for us to know how people of South Sudan feel towards the people of the United States. That could Im imply also the, your foreign policy to what level it reached the hearts of the people of South Sudan. The second thing we did some work on the evaluation of Operation Lifeline Sudan. Operation Lifeline Sudan was the one that was managed during the, uh, during the, uh, during the, uh, during the, the, the war. And this Operation Lifeline Sudan, to a certain degree, contributed a lot that the, the, the international community shows solidarity with the people of South Sudan. And, and it is, a, it is it, and even, even the independence of South Sudan, I could say U.S. government played a very important role. Like what, Kate, what we missed 
it is this issue we assume having an independent country, everything will be smooth. And we did not dig inside to the dynamics of how the South Sudan to govern itself. Maybe the way the, way the perception was in such a way, these are the people, and indeed the people of Southern Sudan, they showed civility when they conducted the referendum. These are great people that are misled by their leaders. And that's why some of us, we have been saying, I was part of the whole thing, the, the Africa, what they need is the, the liberation of the liberator. But because you, you need to liberate Africa from the liberator themselves. Because the liberator, when they come in, what is called the liberation curse. And this is something I think we miss in the process. Even we ourselves in the government, we miss that point. You want to close us out, Dr. John? Yeah. Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. Senator Flake and Senator Markey may have questions. But okay. go ahead, Amy. No, I think just one, one additional uh, observation from what has been said, and, and that is the, the, the focus was very strong on building the institutions of South Sudan, building the state. Uh, much of the UN aid has gone to building the state, building the institutions, building so that the state is strong enough to be able to t turn around and offer services to its people. What was missed was a, that, that, that state building was a, a vertical process. Uh, what was missed was a, what might be called a, a horizontal nation-building process, so that the people of South Sudan develop a more affinity with, this, with, their, with their nation rather than with their ethnic groups. So we, we have people who have not graduated from their citizenship in the tribes into citizenship in the nation. And, and that was uh, something that could have been done. Um, the, the U.S. could have had a, a two a dual project of state building and nation building, uh, such that uh, people have exp uh, expressed loyalty to their state, to their country, rather than uh, to various ethnicities. The other, of course, is accountability for U.S. money in South Sudan. Yeah. Uh, we could have kept track of <coughs> what the money has produced for South Sudanese something tangible to be shown. Uh, like now, the, the road from Juba to, to Nimuli is, is, is the one big visible thing that has been done. So a lot of U.S. money has is, is been wasted in, uh, in giving uh, contracts to subcontractors and um <coughs> a lot of that money has very little to show that is uh, tangible. I think that there could have been a way for for U.S. to be able to say $11 billion in 10 years, this is what we have shown for it, this is what we can show for it, this is what was wasted. So that there is accountability both within the, the, the administration of U.S. aid as well as uh, the government of South Sudan. Senator Flake, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Chow, can I talk a little bit about uh, climate change, deforestation, famine in South Sudan? Can you talk a little bit about that and what that impact is on the people, but also on the ability to uh, resolve um, the conflict? Um, thank you, sir. Um, I, there is d a definite evidence of uh, degradation of the environment. Uh, it is very noticeable that the rain pattern has changed. There's still you, you might still get the same amount of rain, but it's concentrated 
uh, and not spread throughout the year as it used to be. Um, when I was a, a herd boy, I, I knew some of the plants that grew in my, in, in, uh, on my grazing terrain. Those plants are no longer there. So there is clear evidence that uh, population movements, uh, displacement of people, and new agricultural programs, uh, extensive uh, slash and burn agriculture, and the increase in the number of cattle have definitely had a major impact on the environment. So, so what can international partners do in order to ensure that uh, there is protection of the natural resources within South Sudan? Is there any role for the international partners on that issue? Certainly there's a role, especially on the extractive industries, to be made more responsibly in terms of how they extract oil, particularly. The oil areas have been devastated by, by, by oil production. So there is, can be... By deforestation. By, uh, de de no, but the, the oil production itself has polluted yes. the area. And so the, in that area, you, there are things that the international community can do to ensure that the oil companies are doing it responsibly. Deforestation is also a function of livelihoods changing. What are the which are the international companies that are in South Sudan who are not uh, well, they're all protecting Asian, the Asian. environment as they drill for oil? At the moment, it's all Asian companies. You have the Chinese uh, C, uh, uh, CNPC, and you have Malaysian companies, and you have uh, Indian companies. So should we be attempting to put pressure on the Chinese companies, the Chinese oil companies, to act in a more responsible fashion? Yeah, there are processes in place already. There is a, a, a National Resource Management Act in South Sudan, which could be supported to ensure that uh, oil companies do what they say they are going to do. And th those can be supported so that they are implemented. The moment you implement, uh, you, you pass a legislation, uh, you make it into a law, but it does not get implemented uh, for whatever reasons um, is, is, the pr is the problem. So I think working together with the government, with the oil companies, to ensure that the legislation that have been passed are implemented would be the way to go. Okay, is, is, uh, <coughs> is South Sudan close to a widespread famine? Is there a risk that that could break out? Yes. Yes, it is. It, you know, I, it's very close. 40% uh, of the population is already at a severe level of food insecurity. You know, from you know, the way that uh, food insecurity is uh, classified uh, and studied uh, by you know, technical experts, you know, that's uh, considered um, a large part of the country is at uh, what they call a level four. Level five is famine. Uh, there is already pockets of famine of level five food insecurity in South Sudan, including in northern Baragazal, which notably is the home area of the chief of general staff of the army. So even in his home area, people can't eat and they are fleeing north to Darfur, as you pointed out in your opening statement. But uh, in fact, we don't fully know the level and the extent uh, of the crisis because the government blocks access and the government blocks uh, some of the data from uh, being released uh, to appreciate uh, the severity of the crisis. Well, just two months ago, it's reported that government soldiers looted the World Food Program's main warehouse in Juba and just took all the food that was there. Um, Tell us what that says about the government, what it says about you know, the, the situation there and how the government itself was exacerbating the famine, the hunger amongst its own people. 
Indeed, that is correct, which was the World Food Program uh, warehouse was uh, raided, the food was taken, and as a result, there was insufficient food to feed the civilians inside the protection of civilian sites that are being run by the United Nations and are protecting, in Juba alone, 35,000 civilians. So women actually had to leave the sites to get food for their families because of what happened with the government taking the food. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, it's a statement that the government um, is solely interested in making sure that its troops um, are fully fed and uh, that, in fact, the civilians who depend upon the World Food Program uh, are not receiving the assistance that they should be providing. And it's more than just stealing the food out of the, uh, uh, out of the warehouse. Uh, in fact, uh, they erect barriers throughout the country that make it difficult at times for the World Food Program not only to deliver the food that it wishes to deliver, but to monitor the delivery in a way that it should be monitored. So it's a, a very difficult and challenging situation for the humanitarians, uh, including the World Food Program, which continues, despite these challenges, to do their best to try to deliver food to up to 40% of the population in the entire country. Well, that's incredible. Um, well, thank you. Thank you all for everything that you do on this mission. Thank you. My staff was sharing with me that uh, enough food was taken to feed 250,000 people for three months. You say one month, a period of time. So, listen, thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here and discussing this uh, harrowing topic with us. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, if it's the record remain open until the close of business Friday, if you would fairly promptly ask. Uh, answer questions that will come to you. We'd appreciate it again. Thank you for your testimony, for your interest in this issue. And with that, the meeting's adjourned.